the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello and joining you from the Tramontana Mountains in Mallorca this week. My name is Daniel Freeber. I'm the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast in a week when a much-loved football highlight show in the UK was silenced because of something its host said on Twitter, evoking memories of a journalist strike and hence eerily voiceless 1994 Milan-San Remo for Italian TV viewers. So if you're nonplussed at having to sit through nearly seven hours of what some heathens call the most boring race on the calendar on Saturday... Imagine having no commentator along for the ride or inevitable poxineration. We'll also be talking about Paris-Nice, where I was last week, and we'll be serving up hot takes from Tireno Adriatico. When I say we, taking his place in this week's trifecta is a man who, if he squints or possibly invests in a very powerful telescope, can look out across the med and practically see the Poggio di San Remo from his bedroom window in Pietra Santa. Somewhat surprisingly, no Dane has ever won La Classicissima, but today we're expecting some triumphant inputs into our race preview from a gentleman who knows his capo, Mele, from his Berta, and proved his Ligurian credentials with us on the Giro last year by dunking a large square of salty, oily focaccia into his cappuccino. It's former CSC Green Edge and Sky Press Chief and Leopard Trek team manager, Brian Nigard. Nikard, I've given you the proper Danish, kind of proper Danish pronunciation this week. Brian, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. I got back from uh, California a few weeks ago, and uh, yeah, it, it feels like I've, I've turned back to, came back to Italy, and it's spring, and all the important races are, are full on. So we're in probably, I mean, if you look at, not look directly at the Giro, my favorite part of the year. Brian, do you know your Capo Mele from your Capo Berta? Can you tell us, what are the order of the Capi? Um, oh, that's a tough one, is it? Yeah, that's actually a tough one. But I, I actually think it's in the... You gave it away by saying in, in, in the right order when you asked the questions. It depends which way you're traveling. Well, I, w- I would suggest the race, the race route, obviously. Depends which way you're traveling as our third guest reveals his identity. Well, well come on, give us, the, give us the order. The three. Capo Mele, Capo Berta. Oh, he's got it. He's got it. He's got it. Okay. I was hoping to score some early points there, but no. Um, also joining us this week is a man who is on the way to Milan San Remo as we speak and has even announced that he'll be wrecking the Cipress and Poggio for us on Friday afternoon, which should just about give him enough time to avoid getting tarmac by Pogaccia on Saturday afternoon. <laughs> he requires no further introduction and last week required no further host, summarily dispensing with my services. He is... This week, at least, Il Leone della Riviera Ponente, Lionel Burney. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Thank you, Daniel. Yes, I'm on the way to San Remo. We're, we're not going to cut out the Capi either. We're going to do them as well as uh, Cipressa and the Poggio. Simon Gill, Simon the photographer, and I are traveling down. I am speaking to you from a hotel bedroom in Macon. So we're roughly Is halfway. It it's not actually an Ibis, no. Um, I stayed in Ibis last week. I'm going to shame Ibis on this week's podcast. I, we were absolutely ripped off by Ibis in Orléans. Terrible um, Ibis in Orléans for 120 euros a night. Disgraceful. Anyway, go on. Well, I mean, um, if Ibis's lawyers are listening, their their pricing is uh, presumably fair and competitive. I don't know. I must admit, I do think the, 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 the cost of travelling here in Europe has taken a bit of a hike, it feels, compared to even last year, which felt expensive. But uh, yeah, we are in a central 
uh, Macon location. As soon as I finish recording the podcast, Simon and I will head down to San Remo. I'm there to make a Friends of the Podcast special, which Tom Wally will be putting together for us to go out next week. And of course, Daniel, we will be speaking on Saturday evening while Pogachar and co are still dampening down or drying off the sweat from their brows uh, we will be recording an episode of Arivea the first of the classic season won't we and that will go out on Saturday night our snap look at how Milan San Remo shakes down how is Macon looking Lionel it's a lovely spot there on the salon but I've had a few I've been ripped off a few times in Macon some very expensive <laughs> restaurants on the salon it's actually great value for it's I think it's one of the the best values here we go if you here want we a Bur- burgundy type <laughs> chardonnay Macon is really the place to go a mere Highly thousand pounds a bottle yeah no no, yeah. no 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 no, no. <laughs> it's a warmer area and they're riper earlier so they're actually quite drinkable in early age get in there Lionel there's some great bottles for you waiting just down the road well, we're driving today, Brian, so I won't won't have my usual breakfast wine. Um, the, the, it's just a relief. It's just a relief to see the sunshine. I mean, it's glorious and bright out. It's quite crisp and cold, but the UK has been in the depth of winter. It's felt like the last few weeks, and so the last it's just lovely. Years. It's just lovely yeah. to see the sunshine. Shall we press on, chaps, with the news roundup? Um, news roundup in which this week we're going we're gonna to prioritise quality over quantity. A few relatively big stories, talking points we're going we're gonna to reflect on in some depth. Start with, well, where I was on Monday. There was a press conference in Nice on Monday with the tour director Christian Prudhomme revealing details of what what will be the closing weekend of the 2024 Tour de France. We already knew that the race would finish in Nice. We learned on Monday that the penultimate stage will be a mountain blockbuster with a sense of the Col de Braus, uh, Col de Turini and the Col la Colmian followed by a reprisal of the 15.7 kilometre Col la Cuyol which hosted a summit finish at Paris-Nice at the weekend on Saturday. On the last day in 2024, we'll then see a very hilly, I would actually say 35-kilometer mountain time trial, starting in Monaco and finishing on the Promenade des Anglais in Nice. Um, Chaps, first thoughts. I mean, I think we discussed a few weeks ago, I can't remember who we had on the pod that week, but I'm very excited about the tour finishing somewhere other than Paris and well, it's quite a, an iconic location in itself in cycling largely due to Paris-Nice isn't it the Promenade des Anglais and what a cracking final weekend we're going to have because the Col de la Criole I mean I was there on Saturday and that's so the southern part of the, what they call the Mercantour Alps and one of the more remote and more beautiful more sort of savage sauvage Parts of the Alps can be very beautiful and um, very difficult as well. And that, that mountain time trial, as I said, with the La Tourbie, the ascent of La Tourbie and the cold airs as well on Sunday. Lionel, what are your thoughts? I think it's great. I mean, we should say this is because the Olympic Games will be about to get underway in Paris. And so uh, Paris cannot also host the finish of the Tour de France. And the decision to finish in Nice, I think, is a good and exciting one, especially with a time trial on the final day. That's the first time it will have happened since 1989, which, of course, you know, almost the the danger of repeating the final day time trial in the Tour de France is that it won't live up to that incredible showdown between Greg LeMond and Laurent Fignon when 
Le Monde overturned Fignon's 50-second advantage on the final day and won the Tour by eight seconds. Still the closest ever Tour de France. Whether we get that level of drama in Nice next year remains to be seen. But I think the, the fact that it's different will excite a lot of people. I know it's become quite fashionable for people to complain about the boring processional stage in Paris. But it's a real coup for the Tour de France because there are very few events that can actually close down the centre of Paris to that extent uh, annually and have that guarantee. Are you slightly surprised? You said that the Tour de France and the Olympics can't take place at the, well, at the same time in the same place, but I'm slightly surprised that they haven't tried to mesh them somehow in the mm. sense that the Tour de France is the most iconic sporting event in France and I don't actually I haven't actually checked the dates of the Olympics but I don't know whether the Olympics will already be underway will they when the tour starts um, I don't know whether the tour could have you know you could have, you could imagine the yellow jersey wearer carrying the Olympic torch or something along those lines um, I don't know I hate to sound like a dad here always thinking about logistics but it still means there's 5,000 hotel rooms they need to somehow scrounge That's up true. in, in an already true. very busy... Surely uh, we, could all stay, we could all stay in the Ibis, the, the various Ibises scattered around the Yveline. <laughs> the Olympics kicks off on the 26th of July next year, five days after the Tour de France has uh, finished. Uh, I gather from talking to Francois, it's, uh, it is boring practical reasons, as Brian says, it's hotel rooms, but it's also, you know, the... the, the the strain on the the authorities the police and the various other security services that have to keep the olympics safe you know it's just another job to do in the capital just five days before i i think it's just logistically impossible i can imagine pog riding onto the Elysees, actually waving the olympic torch like a like a crazed pyromaniac and seeing an actual pog incineration maybe um, Maybe if they that went back to quite spectacular. go back to old school rules and just have the tour as a kind of uh, you know three week long time trial, and Pog could ride in. He'd be there a day <laughs> before everybody else, and uh, it would uh, it would give the authorities a bit of leeway. But no, I think it's going to be good that finish down in Nice. A change is as good as a rest. What uh, the the thing for me is, what does this mean going forward? Does this mean that the tradition is broken and that it makes it easier for the tour? Uh, or more to the point, easier for Paris to say, look, maybe we'll do three years in four. I mean, I think there's a little bit of, um, you know, speculation that that might be the case. So maybe the the long link with Paris and the Champs Elysees, the Champs Elysees tradition goes back to 1975. Um, maybe we'll see some different finishes in future years. Weren't they going to turn that all into a, a pedestrian area, anyways? That uh, part of Paris, so. I don't think that the logistics going onwards, looking down the line of years, that I don't think they can actually do that uh, circuit race if they if they go ahead. And I think those plans have been approved. Chaps, any ideas? Maybe we've had this discussion before. What other iconic locations could there be in France to finish the Tour de France? It's sort of internationally instantly recognised landmarks that are outside Paris because... You know, the Giro, I think Italy's, well, there's maybe less pressure on it because it's not as big a race um, to find those iconic sites. But Italy has a lot of mm, sort of second tier iconic sites like the arena in Verona where we finished last year. And I think it's one of the, the, the grandest, most beautiful finishes for a Grand Tour. But there are others in Italy as well. In France, uh, it's, it's more difficult. I think the Côte d'Azur itself will be shown off 
um, to its best effect by that 2024 um, Tour de France finish. Um, the helicopter shots were spectacular. The Promenade des, Ang- des Anglais, there's the cycling link there, but there aren't too many that come to mind. Now, you know, somewhere like Carcassonne would make a spectacular finish for the Tour de France, but for a race that's really trying to court a global audience, I don't know. What, what sort of mm. what options might there be? Marseille, Bordeaux, I think you I know, maybe the, 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 the Tour de France would possibly go more extreme and say, let's finish on Alpe d'Huez or let's finish on Mont Ventoux. I think that, you know, if there is an opportunity to break with that tradition, Prudhomme is the sort of person that would really break with it and say, OK, we've negotiated to finish in Paris, I don't know, two years in three, but every third year we're going to have a really spectacular finale. Well, we'll have to wait and see, but I think it could be you know, a, a real change of direction for the Tour. Looking at the, what they announced for 24, the dynamics of whatever is going to happen in the race before that, you know, now we see with the Tour this year, it's not the hardest last week of, um, of recent years, but the, the finish next year will be very, very difficult. So I think it will be interesting to see what's going to be the, the harder part of the last week when it, when it finishes that hard, because it will change the racing uh, retrospectively almost. People will have to really think carefully about how they spend their energy. Chance we'll be talking mainly about racing in parts two and three, the racing we saw last week, Tireno, Adriatico and Paris-Nice, but there has been other, there have been other races taking place over the last few days. In the Women's World Tour, it was the Ronda van Drenthe at the weekend. I also discovered at the weekend that Drenthe is the least populated province in the Netherlands, with attractions including the International Wooden Shoe Museum. Uh, anyway, Lorena Wiebus from the province of Utrecht, not Drenthe, showed the peloton a clean pair of heels to win there and divert, well, I suppose divert some attention away from the demi-volering Lotta Kopecky SD Works Sprint Farago uh, the previous weekend's at Strade Bianche. Lionel, you discussed this in the pod last week of course um, my two cents I think it was a bit of a cock up to be honest by SD Works um, I was just thinking about always in these situations when two teammates come to a finish together I always think of when I used to work at Mappe many years ago now 20 years ago and how they used leveraged and sort of fawned over that image of the three Mappe riders um, winning Paris-Roubaix or coming over the line together in Paris-Roubaix. And that became, well, that became the iconic image of the company sponsorship of their engagement in professional cycling. And it was seen to sort of crystallise and encapsulate everything that Mappe was trying to get out of cycling. And SD Works, well, they... They didn't get that, did they, with the sprint between Kopecky and following? And I know there were a lot of recriminations. You know, there were there were things said at the finish. And I was with Hugo Corvitz at Paris-Nice, the, the Belgian journalist. And his daughter is working as the press officer for SD Works. So she was in the thick of that. So I was getting... Um, I was party privy to some of what was sort of being said and talked about behind the scenes. But, um, yeah. Isn't the big difference that... In the in those iconic images that you refer to, Daniel, that Dr. Squinzy, you know, the the owner and, and presidente of Mape had already dictated who was to win and, and etc. And, and he in was this, denied it, this. He yeah, was denied well, this. then maybe Pasani had in the in the team car. I don't know, but it seemed like there there, there definitely wasn't an agreement and there wasn't a, a, a set order of who was to cross the finish line first. So what should have been a huge, like immense success and iconic images for them 
just turned into a, a brawl, really, didn't it? And it was all the more interesting for that, frankly, as we said last week. But uh, I expect Hugo's daughter had her SD works cut out, trying to spin that, uh, spin that as a positive for the team. But I mean, yeah, the, the name of the game is winning first, isn't it? And then sorting out everything else afterwards. So uh, you know, I mean, I don't think they're going to be uh, too many complaints. They are currently cleaning up across across the board, aren't they? Well, Lionel, talking of women's strade bianche repercussions, fiascos, you have news on another one, a more significant one. Well, we saw Kristen Faulkner of Jaco Alula, who rode extremely well all day, held off Vollering and Capecchi until the streets approaching the Piazza del Campo. And a few listeners actually pointed out, because I didn't notice it on the TV coverage, I must admit, um, but... Kristen Faulkner appeared to be wearing a continuous glucose monitoring sensor on her left arm, and that is not allowed by the UCI regulations. And, uh, well, I contacted the UCI and we got a statement back, which I read out in last week's episode. And yesterday they confirmed that Kristen Faulkner has been disqualified from Strada Bianca, where she was third, uh, for breaching Article 1.3.006 bis of the UCI regulations due to the wearing of continuous glucose monitoring sensor throughout the event. Now, these sensors are not allowed in competition, but we know that SD Works, Jumbo Visma, they have official arrangements with with our title sponsors, Super Sapiens, uh, to use the technology in training. We know Theo Gagan Hart is a big um, supporter of the benefits of monitoring glucose during his training, but they're currently not allowed in competition. And even though, you know, you need a phone or in the case of Super Sapiens, the, the energy band to actually see the data in real time. And, and as far as I can tell, um, Faulkner didn't have any way of monitoring her glucose levels throughout the event. Nevertheless, it still would have been gathering data. And that is against the rules. And I mean, we haven't heard from either Jaco Alula yet or from Faulkner herself. Maybe there will be some kind of statement coming over the course of the rest of the week because they are assume will have only have found out shortly before the UCI issued a statement yesterday but Faulkner was called up late for the race it could well have just been an oversight um, but I do think that this um, you know this will raise the question of whether the UCI need to look again at that regulation is there any difference between this and a power meter I mean it's a it's a sort of philosophical debate but also a technical debate and uh, it's something that Tom Wally and I will probably look at for a future episode of Service Course because I think it's quite an interesting story and development what trend are they ultimately by having such a rule it feels like they are worried that this will be a gateway to something else that there is another metric that can be measured or will be measured at some point in the future in the near future that they don't want to be measured now there's a strong uh, anti-technology stance in the UT- in the UCI that that I think is slowly, but um, as with most things, very slowly changing. You know, it, it's this one stems back from the days of Hein Verbruggen and Pat McQuaid, that they were very anti-technological. Um, but I think in, in this case, it's comparing it directly to the power meter, I, I think is nonsense because it's two completely different sets of data. But I, I, I think the riders and potentially the, the people who produce this technology, the teams, etc., they, they sometimes rules needs to be a re- revision based on technology advances uh, rules don't so you probably need to revisit them and figure out what what the best position is you can't just rule out anything just just for the sake of it i just wonder i mean more and more people at the moment are talking about lactate testing and we've mm. we've seen the images for years and years of riders getting you know little pricks in their ears and having their lactate levels measured i just wonder whether 
you know, if you were to get, for example, continuous lactate monitors, that or something of that ilk would add another layer to this idea that people have of everything being computerized, quantified, and a little bit robotic. I think a lot of the time that's turned into a, a red herring, this idea that people are just riding to watts um, and so on and so forth. But I think that's that's an, uh, an impression that the UCI probably want to avoid. Yeah, um, I think I think there's a, a question of what do the spectators, the sponsors, the riders themselves want the sport to be? Do they want it to be a sport of information or do they want it to be a sport where athletes are effectively having to go, you know, ride almost blindfolded in, in, a, in a sense? I mean, uh, go on intuition and feel. And I think cycling is such a romantic sport and we hark back to these kind of romantic stories of, of heroics uh, where, you know, riders take risks and are rewarded for that. And I think we've seen the style of racing change over recent years because, you know, these long range attacks that we're seeing that are now winning races from 50 kilometers out. And we didn't see that 10 years ago um, to anything like the same degree. And I think that is a direct consequence of riders knowing more. They understand more. They have more data. They know, um, you know, that, so, that, so the information that they gather in training and testing um, is then becomes intuition, you know, so they know what they are capable of. And I suppose it's a question of how far down that road does the sport want to go. And I think it's too easy to say, well, if we give the riders every bit of data on a screen in front of them, that they will just race like robots. I think that's just not practical. The sport is too difficult, too chaotic. There are too many variables, too many decisions. Um, but what it, you know, this this particular issue, the glucose monitoring um, you know, it, it might give some riders an advantage and then it, it comes down to, uh, when I say an advantage, I mean in terms of being able to interpret that data in real time and know their body better than the next person. And I suppose that's the question of whether we want the sport to be going in that direction. But again, probably something that will be permitted at some point because I think the tide of progress, you know, is impossible to hold back indefinitely. Chats, more race news or at least race program news. We thought Egan Bernal would be back in action at the Settimana Copia Bartali next week. This after the organiser of that race sent out press release crowing about the 2019 Tour champion topping their bill. However, mere hours later, Bernal's team, Ineos Grenadiers, announced that he will now ride the Volta a Catalunya between March 20th and March 26th instead. Garant Thomas will also start in Catalunya as will Remco Avenepoel, your favourite Brian. Primoz Roglic and also Adam Yates is going to Catalonia. Um, final item in the roundup. Speaking of Spanish stage races, it was announced a week ago that Burgos Biache and Caja Rural have received the last two wild cards for the Vuelta a España, which starts in Barcelona, where I spent some very frustrating hours on Monday because one runway is um, closed at the airport and every flight was being delayed about four hours. So that was incredibly infuriating god dear me this is i mean ibis hotels the spanish yes, aviation industry yes. i mean anyone else on on the cycling podcast consumer special <laughs> um, the welter sorry the welter begins in barcelona when all the runways will hopefully be open again on the 26th of august this means that uh kern farmer and Huescaltel uh, Huescadi will both miss out on the Vuelta a España this year. That is a further body blow for Huescaltel, in particular in the year when the Tour de France will be starting in Bilbao, and they will not be there either. 
And that, chaps, concludes the roundup for this week. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. Thank you very much to our title sponsors, Super Sapiens. Continuous glucose monitoring technology may be banned in the Peloton, but you can use it to monitor your glucose levels in real time and gain some insights into how your body processes the food that you eat, responds to the stress of training and racing, and uh, how you recover from those efforts. Super Sapiens has actually joined forces with the NBA, the National Basketball League's Launchpad uh, initiative, which is basically the NBA select a range of tech companies to partner with for a period of time. And Super Sapiens is one of the seven tech companies that are going to be working with them. The, The NBA offers a range of support and investment and access to their athletes quite an interesting development for super sapiens that and it made me just think that the nba playoffs are approaching and my team the new york knicks which i know is akin to you know i don't know an american um soccer fan supporting manchester united just picking the big city team Uh, but the new york knicks are famously unsuccessful they haven't won the championship since the 1970s but uh, they're my team just because why do you support Well, well, because when I first went to America and went to New York, I went to see them play at Madison Square Garden. This was years ago now. Patrick Ewing era, late 90s. And uh, I went to... um, My only ever NBA game was a New York Knicks game at at Madison Square Garden against the Dallas Mavericks. And I was going to ask, Brian, as you've lived in the US, do you have an NBA team that you follow? Yeah, and it happens to be the most successful one, the Golden State Warriors. Oh, of course. Well, you were Cali- yeah. California-based, weren't you? Glory well, it's hunting. A lo- it's, a lo- it's the local team, isn't it? I'm sorry. The thousand-dollar bottle of wine NBA team, yeah. Anyway, Super Sapiens are our title sponsors, and you can find out more about them at supersapiens.com. Just before we move on, a very quick plug for our 1101 Cappuccino, our Substack newsletter, which goes out weekly or thereabouts. Uh, This week's one will go out after Simon and I have done our recce ride on uh, the the climbs of Milan San Remo. So look out for that. And if you want to sign up and get it directly into your inbox, go to either our Substack page or to thecyclingpodcast.com to sign up. I, uh, I never participated in parties before. Two times in Terreno at the same time. And I always feel uh, that I'm good at the first races. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, always my goal to, my dream to win parties as well. And, uh, and how that I did it is uh, incredible. Well, chaps, that was the very familiar voice, now very familiar voice, of Tadej Pogacar, the winner of Paranisa at the weekend. I guess you were both watching, well, I hope you were both watching. I was there. Pogacar winning the general classification by 53 seconds over David Gordou. More significantly, perhaps, Brian, certainly as far as Danes were concerned, he beat Jonas Vingegaard by 1 minute 39 seconds. Just run down quickly some of the well, the, the stage winners in particular from Paranis. Tim Merlier won a stage match. Pedersen, Jumbo Visma won the team time trial. Then, well, Pog won stage four. He won stage seven and he won stage eight. 
and stage well stage five was won by olaf koi stage six was cancelled as i say i was there i was on my um i was busy with my other gig with itv and well it delivered didn't it chaps we expected we were looking forward to the duel between jonas vingegaard and tade pogacar it was a pretty emphatic verdict in favor of pogacar Certainly after, well, he dropped, surprisingly, really. I, d- I don't know if you were watching live the uh, the stage to La Loge des Gardes. That was the first mountaintop finish in the middle of the week on the Wednesday. And, well, we saw a what looked like a pretty scintillating attack from Vingegaard and Pogacar seemingly only able to follow. But then when Pogacar countered, um, Vingegaard sort of blew up, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he did. I mean, it opened, I think, the the speculations, if not just isolated from this stage, but in general, where they compare, obviously right now, but where they, where will they compare in peak form in, in July? That's, I mean, we all want to see that, that jewel, but it, I think it's a question of how do you measure uh, measure them up against each other? It, it was clear this week in, oh, sorry, last week in Paranese, but what does that mean for the tour? That's the, that's the big question for Jonas Vingegaard and that's that's been you know him being Dane there's been so much uh, discussion and speculation about that in Denmark and it sort of divides people into saying well he shouldn't be that good now it all, it's all about July and and others probably including me saying well why you know he won in in Galicia the Gran, the Gran Camino he said he came to Paris to win he knew that um, Pogaccia was going to be there so he must have also had an idea of where he was in terms of his shape uh, but I think we already saw in the team time trial that it wasn't exactly sh- shining hour for him. Yeah, that was exactly what I was about to say. I think the first warning sign was the team time trial. Jumbo Visma came with a team that was stacked for the team time trial. It looked as though they were investing a lot of their hopes in that particular race with guys like Affini. They had Rowan Dennis there. But they were pretty. it was a pretty threadbare team as far as the climbing department was concerned. They had Dennis and Tobias Foss, but it was a team of time trialists. And... Okay, they took, I think it was 20, 23 seconds on Pogaccia, but we saw this sort of scintillating last kilometre, which, well, we'll talk in a minute about the format of the team time trial with everyone, each of the riders getting their individual time effectively, but this scintillating last kilometre kilometer where he was sort of catapulted, launched by, was it Mikael Bjerg, wasn't it, the last rider for UAE? And that really limited his losses on the team time trial. And then... Well, that was a a foretaste of what we saw in the remaining stages. Particularly, it again, Pranis again demonstrated this incredible explosive flourish that Pogacar has that we've seen many times. But it's such a weapon, particularly, and this is another sort of innovation with Paris-Nice that maybe we should talk about, is we had these these intermediate sprints which were worth six seconds, which made them very valuable indeed. They weren't just a sort of a mid-stage diversion which ultimately decided who was going to win the green jersey. They became very much worth going for on the general classification, particularly when they were almost a fait accompli for Tade Pogacar because, I don't know, I mean, watching him sprint, it occurs to me that the guy could be finishing in the top 10 in bunch sprints. He's so explosive. Every time he's sprinting in Paris, he wasn't just beating the likes of, okay, David Gordou, you know, these are climbers, but but fast climbers. He wasn't just beating them, he was, he was dropping them. In the space Michael, of a hundred Michael Matthews, or so. he, he beat Michael it, Matthews early in the week. Slightly, slightly contentiously, um, leading to, leading some to suggest that the friendship, the Michael Matthews, 
Tadej Pogacar friendship um, was a, a bit more like an agreement between teammates. But, you know, these were that was a real feature of the race. And you will talk in a minute about Roglic as well, how it's been a cornerstone of his success over the last few years in his, his fast finishing. And I don't know, this is a headache for Vingegaard looking ahead to the Tour de France. One thing that people keep saying in his defence uh, which I don't think is a valid argument, uh, at least not this year, is that, yeah, yeah, but let, let Pogaccia burn all these matches using all his energy for these seconds and for these fast finishes because he's going to pay a bill in the third week of the Tour. But then, but then when you look at the, the other two Tours he's raced, when you look at the welter he did in 19 in his debut year, and when you also add what the Tour looks like in the third week this year, I, I don't think it's a valid argument saying that, oh, he's just going to waste all his energy so he's going to crack in, in the last week. I, I'm, I don't think we have enough data to really prove that. True, but if you look back at last year, we were at this point. Pogacar had won the UAE Tour. He'd absolutely destroyed everyone at Strada Bianca, and he'd won Tirreno Adriatico, not quite in such a, a dominant form. But he was looking very good. And then, of course, you know the, the really eye-catching result of his spring was uh, when he was in the mix at the Tour of Flanders. The difference this year is that Vingegaard is in the spotlight in a way that he just wasn't last year. And so there is a temptation to, to look at Vingegaard this week and think, oh dear, he is he is well off the back here. And, and I know it's only seconds here and there, but if you extrapolate a Paris-Nice over three weeks and throw in the severity of that final week, you know, a, a, a minute over a week, uh, you know, becomes three or four. There is a catch-up to do, but there's time to do it. And I, I, I do think that Pogacar... Is, not saying he paid the price for having such a strong spring last year when he got to the Tour de France, but it's a long season, long way to go. I just think it's interesting signs. And, and our friend Francois Thomas, when I asked him, you know, after Pogacar and Vingegaard had gone for the bonus sprints on the opening stage, uh, it was notable that Vingegaard sent his teammate the next day. And Pogacar still sort of snaffling up points, Eddie Merck style, uh, time bonuses, Eddie Merck style. I said to Francois, you know, what does this mean for July? And, and he just said, well, not a lot at this stage. And I think that's, that's true. Vingegaard has got some stuff to think about but there's time to um, to think about it and let's also realize you know the 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 team has got the time to put more resources behind him for the mountain stages as well as you said Daniel it was a little bit light on the climbs and we we kind of saw a um, you know not a full st- not a full strength Tour de France style Jumbo Visma team so early indications but by no means does this mean that July's done and dusted on the time bonuses as well, I said that in a race like Paris-Nice, you know, they, they have usually been thought of as a bit of a mid-stage diversion. That's not the case in the Tour de France where the green jersey, the much darker green jersey as of this year, which um, I think has caused some teeth gnashing, um, that is is much more prestigious at the Tour de France. And you will have guys like Wout van Aert sprinting for intermediate sprints and um, it'll be much harder for Tadej Pogacar to pick up that sort of cheap time the other sort of note of caution I would say with Pogacar is what what are his what have been his weaknesses in well certainly last year this idea and I think it's been confirmed by him that he's not as strong in the heat it was maybe notable that after Saturday's stage finishing on the Colacuyol which he did win he also mentioned the heat and that was the one day he didn't managed to emphatically um, drop and David Godu. And when I say heat, it was about 20 degrees, if that, 
on the Colacuyol on Saturday. The other thing is this issue of the longer climbs, which we didn't have at Paranese. We know that, well, I think he talked on Sunday about how he, he loved Sunday's Nice-Nice route, partly because the climbs were sort of six, seven kilometers, and that is absolutely perfect for Tadej Pogacar. I mean, if he ever does go back to the Vuelta a España, I think he will blitz that race because there are a lot of much shorter climbs there. In the Tour de France, we're going to see a lot of 12, 15 kilometer climbs, and it's all going to be very different. But, you know, he hasn't been to altitude yet. He, I think, surprised himself with how strong he was. He sounded very confident in his interviews. He is sort of, well, he's kind of growing in stature, I feel, in his team, in the peloton. He he um, is no longer the kind of shy, slightly bashful anti anti star that he was maybe two or three years ago he's someone who seems very much in control of his craft at the moment and um he's 24 there's there is a good chance of course that he's still getting better still developing and that's also slightly worrying for Jonas Vingar. but there's ways also to i mean those if you say he has an achilles heel with the heat there's, there's a lot of research going into that at the moment and yes. it's not like the the uae is is lacking budget to figure out you know the the avant-garde of the science uh, on the on the subject so i think there's a lot there's so much they they can do as well you mentioned that your has work to do but i'm sure that uae if if we all know that he has those weaknesses i'm sure they know them inside out as well and, and need to figure out a way to manage them what's also going to be fascinating is just their respective build-ups to the tour well they're probably not going to race again until the tour de france they're not due to race again together has got a packed spring program most of the classics both Arden and cobble classics and then we're not going to see him again until the tour of slovenia and at this stage, Brian, I mean, we've seen with Roglic that Jumbo Visma are open to tweaking riders' race program. Roglic wasn't supposed to do Tireno, he did do it in the end. But Vingegaard's not supposed to race again until the Dauphiné. Um, as oh, he's racing in, uh, in the Tour of Basque Country, actually. Oh, that's been added. You're right, that has been added. Yeah. yeah. But I, yeah. Think that, I think that was a change of plan, was it? No, not, not, to, oh, my, okay. not to my knowledge, actually. Okay. It's it's still a rather meager. I mean, it's it's uh, it's fourteen, it's respectively fourteen and sixteen days of racing before they see each other at the tour. So it it's a it's a fairly it's very different because you can't compare uh, po- uh, Pogacar doing seven one day races from now until Liège. The concentration of racing for Vingegaard is completely different because he's doing that week of in the Basque Country and that's it until until the Dauphiné. So it is very different, but it also it's. It suits their, their 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 style of riding a lot, you know. I'm Vingegaard definitely is going to the best country to seek confirmation and to try and win, which will be a, a whole lot easier with Pogacar not being there and, and Roglic probably neither. I'm very curious to see what what level he'll perform in the best country. We all know that Pogacar is gonna. I think he's gonna pick up one or two wins over the next period, even if it's if they are the biggest one day races in the world. Not the ideal week for Vingegaard, but a good week for the Danes, Brian, because Mads Pedersen won a stage and had a day in the yellow jersey, and then Magnus Court. Mads Pedersen did actually exit the race with illness, uh, which wasn't uh, the perfect lead-up to a race uh, like San Remo, a race that he, he does not like either at all, but suits all his qualities. So, yeah, I mean, you can't really have a week of racing in the main part of the season where it's not a success for the Danes. This year's Lionel, to be honest. And I'm not flying the national flag, so yeah. 
Very true, very true. But Magnus Court took the jersey in that team time trial. The first time, Daniel, we've seen that format. What did you make of it being there on the ground? Because on TV, it was quite tricky to sort of see any trends. Well, it was kind of going into the unknown. We didn't, you know, this idea that, that teams would maybe slingshot a, a leader to ride the maybe the last kilometre, see if they could eke out a few seconds. The format would suit a kind of, Time, team time trial with an uphill finish absolutely brilliantly we might see a really spectacular stage unfold but it was quite an interesting test of the water wasn't it yeah i don't know if this came across on tv but it was actually an uphill finish not a steep one not a long one it was probably i think it was only 500 meters uphill but that did alter things and I, i'm not sure you would have seen pogaccio launch in the way he did if it had been completely flat so i think it was kind of a a perfect a perfect finish to trial this new format. If it had been a harder climb, then every team probably would have ended up doing the same thing. Whereas this opened it to different scenarios. You saw Jumbo Visma finish with, I think it was three riders together. So I think it was, it was fresh. It was novel. It was, as I said, I think I wrote on Twitter that it gave these sort of snapshots, these images, which kind of encapsulated or how I certainly think of Pogacar versus Vingegaard. Vingegaard is part of, he's a unit within this um, incredible collective force that is Jumbo Visma at the moment. They're the dominant team in professional cycling and they all came over the line together. Whereas Pogacar, um, he is, well, he's the sun and the moon and, and everything else for one particular team, UAE. And he finished the time trial with this swashbuckling solo effort, which is very much in keeping with the way he rides. So I enjoyed that aspect of it. I think that we'll definitely see it again. I don't know what you chaps thought. Well, I, I thought it was, uh, we always see in the races like Paris-Nice and the Dauphiné, something that will crop up in the Tour de France in future years, whether that's a, a climb or in this case, a, a format. Clearly, they uh, will use it in the Tour de France at some point. And I think with some clever routing, uh, you know, sometimes the team time trials are about damage limitation rather than seeking an opportunity. And I think this would spin it round in a big race like the Tour de France where absolutely everything matters. You could see the whole range of things, especially if they had a, a much more of a proper uphill finish. doesn't need to be um, necessarily too long, a couple of kilometres maybe, but that could really make for a spectacular, you know, a, appointment with the TV day of the Tour de France um, and you would see the whole lot you might see a team where the, the, the leader is struggling and they've got to all rally around you might see a team where the leader is flying and, and, and goes off and and really makes some gains and it, I think it would it would make that balance much more about the individual within the team rather than the team being the, being about the, the you know the strength of the fifth man or the fourth man I mean, you know, it did do, speaking to people in the teams, the mechanics and so forth. I mean, one of the beauties of the team time trial when you're on the ground is the sense of this latent like tension and anxiety in the teams. Everyone, it's, it's the most nervous day of the year, particularly when it's in a grand tour for everyone. That wasn't present because, well, as the mechanics told me or more people working for teams telling me you know there wasn't that much riding on the performance of guy four five six um in the team so for them it was a, a much less of an, an anxious day than ordinarily would have been the case and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing i don't really know um but that was quite notable 
I think it changes the dynamics and it makes it, for me at least, a lot more interesting. And I'm not even sure that we need a finishing climb for it to be that. The strategy of each team needs to be considered and, and will, be, will show itself quite visibly for the spectators. And I think also when, when, if, the, if it will be introduced in this era that we're in now in the Tour de France, it's going to be extremely exciting when you look at the, the various candidates you know, going into the next I want no decade or next four or five years, so I think it's going to be. I think it's, it's here to stay, and it, I think it's going to be. It's also depending on how long it is and where it is in the race. I think it's going to have an influence on who people will eventually select to go to the Tour de France. So, and I think that's also that means it's very significant just just because of that. I, I think it's good as well in that it's a visual representation of what a team is actually mm. there for, particularly in stage races. Because I think this is something I've said this before. I've said that. I think all time trials should be team time trials, but particularly so with this format, to a layperson, it's quite difficult to explain what is the role of a team, why it's important for a leader to have teammates around him. But essentially their role is to launch him uh, in a figurative or literal sense. This, In this case, they were launching the leader um, almost literally. And it, as I say, it was a clear visual demonstration of that. It's the best point, Daniel. It's, it's really a condensation of what, what teams are there for in, in those big appointments. That tension that you talk about is really apparent when you're at a team time trial at the Tour de France. There's just an energy around the paddock and just a, no, one is, uh, no one wants to really get out of their bubble before a team time trial and you can almost feel the, the opposite of that at the end when it's all over but that doesn't really translate into television pictures you don't really see that no. tension on the screen whereas with this format you could really see some tactical innovation you could you'd really see much more clearly who's going well who's struggling and uh, I think the the results could be significant but not perhaps as you know decisive and damaging as a, a bad team time trial for a GC contender can sometimes be which sort of leaves you with that deflated feeling that a GC rider's been let down by his team or by circumstances after a team time trial and very final point just on that tension and Pogacar I said this sort of easy breezy air about him that Pogacar has he seems almost immune completely impervious to any tension I mean the Colnago time trial bikes arrives a few days before the team time trial and in any other team this would have been the source of great anxiety didn't seem to bother him at all he did his recon on the Friday I think before, so it happened on the Tuesday, the team time trial, didn't even go for a recon. I think they were the only team UAE that didn't recon the course on the day. So in the race conditions, um, didn't seem to cause him any anxiety whatsoever. Chaps, a couple of uh, hot takes from Paranese. David Gordou, genuine Tour de France contender or not? Genuine friend of Arnaud Demar now or not? Um, that was the, that was the big talking point at the start of the week. Um, how he and Demar were going to mesh together, whether they were going to bury the hatchet. And we saw then we saw Demar leading him out at un- intermediate sprints, obstructing Tadej Pogacar. Um, all smiles, all slaps on the back at the end of the week in Nice. Brian shaking his head there. I mean, he did ride extremely well to get in there in the mix with Pogacar and Vingegaard, and it will be, you know, give the French a, a great deal of hope, but. Uh, I I mean, I think it shows some progression from last year, significantly so. But I was looking at his result in last year's tour, fourth, of course, you know, uh, on paper, you know, that looks like an excellent result, but 13 minutes, 39 down. And when you look at recent editions of the Tour de France, that's generally only good enough for sort of, well, eighth, seventh or eighth at best, but normally just at 10th, 11th, 12th. So, you know, the, the, the classification tells some of the story, but perhaps not all of the story. 
And I think that this week for Godou suggests that he has closed that gap and was able to not just match accelerations, but but mix it properly. I thought it was a really smart and impressive um, ride. And of everybody, he was the only one to really put up uh, much of a fight in the face of the pog slot. It is as well, chaps, the opportunity of a lifetime for Godou, I think, in the sense that the race will start in the Basque Country with some tour of the Basque Country style stages. Um, There is none of, I think... If you think of a normal Tour de France, the two things that would cause someone like David Godou most anxiety would be a first week of a lot of flat stages with a lot of fighting for positions, sprints, the risk of crashes, and then long time trials. In this Tour de France, we're going to have a uh, first three days, which, as I say, is akin to a mini Tour of the Basque Country. And then we've got one time trial, and it's really it's a mountain time trial. So I think it's a perfect opportunity for him to... I don't think he's going to win the Tour... Um, but I think he and I also think Emmerich Mass have got a good chance of not pushing Pogacar and Vingegaard close, but certainly finishing third. I agree. I mean, when you look at the parkour, like you mentioned, he also he will need to use a lot of energy initially to try and actually gain time on some of those other rivals for the third place. In my opinion, I don't think he is. I wouldn't consider him for the overall win. And then also, if we if we follow the conclusions that that we talked about earlier about Perenice, that if Vingegaard is in the shape he was last year I, I think once once it really kicks off in the in the higher mountains in the middle part of, of the tour I, I don't see Godou being at that at that level as those two guys and there's a reason even if he's progressed there's a reason why he lost all that time last year last couple of things I'll probably need before we move on chaps Brian just give us a quick um, synopsis of what was being said in Denmark about Vingegaard and the Vingegaard I'm not going to say failure but maybe people being sort of nonplussed by the outcome of the result of this duel with Pog I think the majority of people and I'm not sure if it's wishful thinking more than it's analytics they, they see it as a sign that let Bogaccio do all these things let him ride all the classics let him take all those risks that those races involve uh, and then Minga will beat him in, in the tour like he did last year because he's going he's gonna to be fatigued once uh, we get to the pointy end of those three weeks I, I don't agree with that analysis, but I can see why it's it's helpful if you if you really see Vingegaard as as being on top of things. And I I don't think he was on top of things. And he, I had a few discussions with people because I said, well, he he said he was going to win, so he must have had some kind of assessment of where he was um, in terms of his shape. But then if you if you then use the excuse afterwards, well, I I don't need to be in my top shape now then why would you even entertain any ambitions? You know, when you saw how they rode for the team time trial, when you saw how they they protected him and even put tempo in some of the climbing stages, they must have thought that he was in contention more than just, you know, trying to, like, be there and see what was going on. He was trying to win the race, but he came out short. So I think think it's it's a cause for, for serious concern, but that's all projection also at my end. But mostly people were... Quite happy with what they saw. It's the best result he's done in Pyrenees as a de- as the best result any Danes ever done. You know he's he's going to have a stronger team in the tour, and uh, people have this idea that Pogacar will just somehow break under his own weight because he uses all this energy. Final thing, completely trivial, but again the cause of some debate on social media: the green jersey, the dark green jersey. Um, yes or no? Brian's making the Italian hand signals. Not a fan. Um, just on this, it is going to be. It's also going to be. I believe, unless the reaction is so 
is so sort of forthright against this new dark green jersey. It is going to be the same colour for the Tour de France. I also asked Bora whether they were going to change their jersey for the Tour de France because it's pretty much a Bora green. I haven't had an answer on that yet, but I think there's a good chance of that. I like it. I mean, the green jersey has changed shades over the years. Uh, in the very late 80s, 89, I think it was, it was a real kind of bright, almost lime green uh, when Sean Kelly won it for the fourth time. Yeah, 89 was a year when uh, Mario Schifano, the Italian pop artist, designed the tour's leader's jerseys. So the green jersey has changed shades. And I think, it's you know, the, the whole point is that uh, it's to, you know, attract a bit of attention, isn't it? I, I quite like it as a change. And it, I think it taps into the current kind of, um, you know, jersey design, doesn't it? It's a, it's the sort of thing that you could see a weekend warrior really rocking. Well, the yellow jersey has changed its uh, its tonality based on the textile and and the evolution of fabrics over the years. So yeah, I I don't really see it as a big deal. The cycling podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport, our long-term supporters. Now, I've been teasing over the last few weeks Science in Sport's Strava Challenge, which is to celebrate the arrival of the Spring Classics, and it kicks off on Saturday, the 18th of March, and runs until March the 31st, and the challenge is to ride 100 kilometres. Already, almost 50,000 participants have signed up on the Science in Sport Strava Cycle Club, and everyone who takes part will get a 20% discount at scienceinsport.com, and one lucky winner will get the prize of a lifetime, the chance to be in the velodrome at the finish of Peru Bay. See the Strava Challenge for all eligibility and terms and conditions. I'll put a link to that in our show notes. And just before we move on, just a mention for MAP as well, our clothing partners, the Cycling Podcast jersey is back in stock at map.cc. And to mark their pursuit of progression campaign we have been asking for listeners to send in their what they want to do on the bike in 2023 i read out one last week and another entry in explore and uh, well david pond says he's got two aims for this season the first is to ride the ghent wevelgem cyclist sportive and take in the plug streets which are the gravelly roads not far from ypres and then at the uh, in the height of summer, he wants to ride the Dunwich Dynamo, which is a 120-mile overnight ride from Hackney in northeast London to Dunwich on the coast in, I think, Suffolk. And he's aiming to arrive for sunrise. That's also a ride I'd love to do, but it always falls in July, so I've never been able to do it. But uh, good luck with those two rides, David. Uh, we'll be in touch to send you a pair of MAP Cycling Podcast socks. You had to drink a lot of champagne this week. Uh, all those uh, jerseys, three stage wins, and the general classification. Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, better to drink with some kind of reason. Huh? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's just a great week behind us. I just said, I mean, on the podium, then at the end, yeah, it's only me, which should be uh, the whole team, everyone. I mean, the guys really worked uh, every day hard and uh, good so uh, yeah at the end we we could achieve uh, what we did all together so yeah pleased to be part of it and uh, yeah it was uh, really nice and i enjoyed it a lot well, chaps, that was another Slovenian voice. Primoz Roglic, winner of Tireno Adriatico for the second time in his career. He um, wrapped that race up after three stage wins like Pog in Pyrenees. Three in a row for Roglic. The other stage winners in Tireno, Ganna, Jakobsen, Philipsen, and then Philipsen again. On the final day, on the GC, 
Roglic, well, thanks to, again, largely time bonuses, he was able to beat Jao Almeida by 18 seconds and Teo Gegenhart. Teo Gegenhart, who's on a fantastic start to the season by 23 seconds. Chaps, uh, Roglic, write him off at your peril. I put a tweet up the other day about his extraordinary record in stage races, stretching back to 2018. Since since Tirreno 2018, he's worn the leader's jersey in every stage race he's competed in, apart from three tours to France. Uh, this mm, this was sort of mocked, scorned by a couple of people. They said, well, if you know, if he didn't wear them in the Tour de France, then then the 21 other stage races that he's led don't really matter. But um, I think this is this is an era-defining run of results in stage races. Quite extraordinary. He deserves a lot more. He deserves a lot more credit. I'm sure that it, it's reflected on his uh, salary. But I think that because we tend to talk so much, especially this year uh, after the tour last year, we talk so much about Vingegaard and Pogaccia. We talk a lot about Evenepoel. I think defining Roglic's career by his shortcomings due to crashes and other things in the tour. I think that's unrespectful. He's, he's an extraordinary rider, he, he, and he's a wonderful rider to watch racing also because he, he wins the way he does. He's a great time trialist, but he wasn't really uh, in Tirreno. He, he came up quite short on the first individual time trial here, just around the corner for I'm sitting. So I, I think he's, he's such a great addition to those races. He might have his shortcomings in the tour, based on the competition and he obviously won't ride it but I still see him as a very realistic contender for the Giro even if if Evenepoel is gunning for it full gas it made me think as well Chats, the fact that well, we had um, Pogacar winning Paranis and Roglic winning Tirreno I mean these two guys now have really defined um, this the last three or four years of stage racing and this brought up again the question of how we feel about domination um, domination of one rider or in this case two riders uh, one nation with Pogacar in particular I saw some people suggesting that he, he could have spared us the spectacle of him riding everyone off his wheel and some even said humiliating the opposition at Paris-Nice on Sunday. I don't know. I mean, I think we've had this discussion before. Uh, Lionel's Lionel's making barking noises. (laughs) The the wolf of Macon is stepping in to say... uh, (laughs) I mean, we had this both ways round, don't we? I mean, it's often... It might not be the same people, but, you know, there will be a reaction regardless of the way the race is pan out won't they when when a when a rider does too much and wins too much they, they get criticized I mean I, I just think about you know Roglic remember when he you know got pelters for chasing down Gino Maida at the 2021 Paris-Nice and you know I think we saw in that race in the space of a week because of course he had that terrible day on the last day and going back to Brian I do, I do think the thing that is attractive about Roglic is that this he has this capability to completely implode um, you know sometimes completely out of the blue and uh, you can understand why he would not want to um, you know let up and and you know give any gifts and I think with Pogacar as well there's a slight difference there in that he just loves he seems to love the racing you know he's racing for sprints because it's there he's racing for you know in the team time trial you know riding the way he wants to ride he's he completely dominated um, all of the uphill in Paris-Nice and I think they are very different characters but you can see across both of them why when a rider has a chance to you know, turn the screw, they will do so. And Roglic, yes, he won three stages in a row, but his winning margin was pretty pretty slim, only 18 seconds. Pogacar, 
I mean, it was all there for him. What I mean, just sitting on somebody's wheel and just cruising up and letting somebody else win the stage. It's just not in their it's not in their DNA. It's it's not what the sport is about. It's a bit like saying Ah, Tiger Woods in his pomp. Well, you're seven shots ahead. Just par in from here. No, he's going to try for a birdie or an eagle on every hole. I mean, that is. We want this essence of of sport. Then the the question is, when does that domination become? you know, too much, too boring, and people then start to root for the underdog. In my case, I kind of always instinctively root for an underdog just because I think they throw up the more interesting stories. I do find domination, you know, boring after a point. But it's not Pogacar's fault. It's not Roglic's fault. They're there to try and win as much as they can. But I think you don't ask an athlete to, to ride against their nature. I, I, and then against some, in my opinion, mis misconstrued uh, aesthetic or moral ideal that goes counter to what professional sports is about. And I think also, I mean, come on. I mean, you, when you think of what these, even, uh, you know, with the greatest talent in modern day, in my opinion, Pogacar, they still sacrifice a lot to actually get to the point where they can be that strong. It's not just something they do off the tip of their head. There's also a way to respect that the, the work that their teammates do. You know, they don't work all day for you to like hand out presents to your competitors at the end. There's maybe not so much in Pyrenees. I mean, I'm sure they're all well paid. There's prize money at stake. There's there's all kinds of things at stake that I think it, it just goes against what we're actually what we're looking for in professional sports. But it's also a society on wheels, isn't it? And and the peloton will decide. You know, if Pogacar, if there's a sense that he's sort of rubbing people's faces in it, there will come a point where the peloton will sense that there's a weakness and if if there's ever a show of weakness they will gang up to you know exploit that weakness and turn the tables on him that's how it works and and i suppose that is what you know if you're looking at the ideal narrative of the cycling season i almost want pogachar to kind of build himself up into this absolutely unbeatable force and then see him unpicked at the tour de france because that would be the, the most entertaining story i suppose Yeah, on that that idea of the society on wheels. I mean, there was the only hint I've seen of that, and actually, I don't really, well, I don't think anyone found out exactly what was going on. But uh, apparently, on Sunday there was a moment where David de la Cruz had been in a break. Uh, the Astana rider, former teammate of Pogacar, he'd been in a break and he was chased down by UAE, and they sort of were making hand gestures at each at each other as though David de la Cruz was indignant that UAE had been riding on the front and well, riding the way they were to try and set Tadej Pogacar. Um, uh, but that's the only hint of it and this is one of the interesting things about Pogacar that he does seem to be very well liked by almost everyone in the peloton completely unanimously and Lionel you said you always root for the underdog things there are, there are elements of the underdog you can find elements of the underdog in almost mm. anyone and um, we bring we all bring our unconscious biases to this idea of who we like and who we root for with Pogacar I mean I'm possibly unconsciously drawn to the fact and also with Roglic that they're from this central this very small central European country that people don't really know much about and that in itself makes them feel a little bit like the underdog Roglic obviously we all know about his past as a ski jumper there's something What? unlikely What? <laughs> there's something unlikely about that there's this idea of, of adversity that's accompanied him throughout his career and um, and going back to Pogacar I mean he's the ultimate showman what he did on Sunday he didn't have to do but it was in the name of offering well enjoyment for himself and stimulation for himself and he's talked about you know that was one reason he wanted to do Paranese he's wanting to do different things all the time he's everything he does is to sort of 
combat the ennui, the monotony of his own sort of life and career and domination, if you want. But he offered a fantastic show in that in that final stage. I mean, there was there was talk I heard from someone in his team on the final day that his original idea on Sunday was to attack from kilometer zero. Um, he felt so so sort of confident about that stage because there were these sort of home roads and so excited about the idea of racing on those roads that he had an idea to launch a, an even more spectacular attack than the one we'd seen that didn't materialize in the end there's always six day racing if people want to see something else you know <laughs> or cycling course <laughs> just on Pogacar Roglic um, the two kings of Slovenia in Paranis I did have a chat with one of our colleagues um, who works for Slovenian National Television, RTV, that is, of Slovenia. His name is David Chermil, and he's pretty much the only Slovenian journalist who's been following these two boots on the ground at races for the last two, I'm sorry, the last few years. So David is in an ideal place to tell us sort of how they're thought of in Slovenia, how their relationship or how this sort of rivalry, a very friendly rivalry has evolved over the last few years. So let's hear from David Chawi on the two stars of last week and of the last few years, certainly of stage racing, Tadej Pogacar and Primoz Roglic. Okay, David, well, you've been, you're a familiar face now, bike races, or you have become one for the last four or five years now. So when you first came, we used to talk, you were the oddity, you were this strange creature that come from this strange country. Wow, there's a Slovenian at the races. Now it's very common because Slovenia has been dominating professional cycling in some sense for a while. So Pogacar looks as though he's going to win this race. And his star just continues to rise. He just, his personality seems to be getting bigger and developing as well. But I want to ask you about the Roglic-Pogacar sort of dichotomy. For a long time, it seemed as though Roglic was the national treasure. He was the one that everyone loved. Pogacar, everyone admired. Is that changing a little bit? Okay, yeah, I think it's changing, but still... Uh, Roglic was the one that started all of this. Okay, there were uh, riders before, like Houtman, like uh, Božić and Brajkovic, Valjavec and so on. But Roglic started this, you know, when we were saying how nice it would be to have a Slovenian with uh, with stage victory in Tour de France. And it was Primoz that started this. So it's logical that, that uh, people liked him, huh? uh, even after. And also... It's his story that is so different. And he's not a cyclist. Uh, he's uh, everything else. He started with 22 years old and so on with cycling. So the story and everything behind. He comes from ski jumping, which is, I can say, national sport in Slovenia. This is something that, that people admire. Then you have Tadej, who is born cyclist. Mm. Um, he really... I don't know, he makes it look so easy. Uh, maybe that's why that's why Primoz is more admirable in Slovenia because for him, for Primoz, it looks very tough, everything. Even though he wins and he wins a lot and by a big margin, let's say, huh, when he sprints uphill. So, But with today, you, you could see it yesterday. Huh? It, it really seemed so easy, so... I don't know, maybe that's why, because, uh, I don't know, maybe Slovenians uh, like to see people suffer, I don't know why, but uh, I think still in Slovenia it is a bit uh, a bit more of a star, Primoz, mm. 
maybe still maybe after a while when we will find out and see what they achieved would be different because mm -hmm. this is something that uh, i don't think we managed to understand what mm -hmm. they achieved one thing that happens or has happened in the past when a rider from a country without without a big tradition in bike racing starts to win for example the tour de france the media arrive en masse lots of journalists tv stations and the pressure increases and it starts to be well, it starts to become quite suffocating for that rider i mean I even saw it with Vingegaard last year when he won the tour and you know what the Danish press and the Danish media are like. There was a lot of attention. It's always surprised me with the Slovenians that it's been you and pretty much no one else for the last two or three years. And, and it always strikes me that this is um, this works in their favour, Pogacar and Roglic, because it seems to be a, a limited amount of scrutiny, attention, spotlight. And also it, it never seems to, to become a a pressurized and a negative force um, yeah it's interesting huh we okay we can say that I, I was for the first time on the tour de france i was in 2012 when yanni brakovic was ninth mm. so um i think that before before primos uh, the our riders were available you know what over the phone calls mm. and so on and uh, if you don't have the rights, okay, we have it for the Tour de France, then you, you need video, let's say. Mm. And we were at the Tour. Um, but uh, others, you know, it was like, okay, a phone call away. Mm. So no one really came here. I, I really don't remember who mm. came here before, let's say, me. And uh, it's, it's now more than 10 years ago. Yeah. And but where are the big, where are the Slovenian uh, newspapers? Where's the big, what's the biggest newspaper in Slovenia? Okay, the biggest is Delo. Where um, are they? They, last year, I think their journalist that covers uh, cycling was here for, let's say, two, three days maybe in Alps. Uh, then when Primoz was fourth at the tour, I know that another journalist from Delo came for two days, three okay. days at the finish. I don't know where they are. <laughs> no, but the, the, the journalists from from the what can I say competitive uh, television he comes often uh, at the Tour de France for a few days uh, a year but I'm happy we're m more or less the only one that's that's how riders know you they I hope uh, mm -hmm. they they know you better and they are more available let's say but yeah. I also like it uh, because then you know you mentioned before when you you're done. I come in mind, it is my turn and I'm alone. <laughs> so it's, it's yeah. pretty nice to be Slovenian at the moment at the Tour de France or even these races. So. And you work for state television or national television. Um, just tell me, during the tour in the summer itself, how, how sprawling is the coverage now? How many hours a day does it take up and has that increased a lot? Um, about the hours per day of, of only of uh, the 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 race itself it's not more because i think it's about the rights and we can cover uh, the the tour from uh, three o'clock in the mm -hmm. afternoon and until the end uh, so i think we even did it a bit more a few years ago already but uh, yeah we grew let's say i think in 2012 or maybe i don't know 
we started the Tour de France covering the Tour de France all the stages. Before it wasn't like this. Okay, in 2012 we, we came here for the first time. Then then um, we did the the show before, let's say, huh? before the tour. Mm. Now last year or the year before already, uh, we've had it for the first time every day after the stage like half an hour of a show studio show let's say it like okay. this yeah a studio show with live uh, let's say with live uh, stand-ups from here uh, okay. with with me and the other team so okay. um it's not like the danes when i go for my morning oh, run oh. <laughs> when i go for my morning run on the tour de france i go at seven in the morning and i'll find three danish crews one no. reporting from the the bridge no. one reporting from the castle yeah. one reporting from outside vingegaard's hotel <laughs> i've heard there were 24 i think last year uh, from the television i'm not sure and mm. don't don't get me wrong maybe yeah. i'm lying but uh, no it's not like this it's like we are here uh, at the tour let's say yeah. we are in um, two journalists two cameramen mm. and then from radio two guys maybe from national television and radio. So this is more or less, uh, we didn't have any studio here yet. And mm -hmm. also the commentators are at home. It's okay, huh? at least I'm proud that the the success, you know, of, of first Primoz and then um, today didn't surprise us, you know, because we grew with, with Tour de France. Let's say we added, every year we added something, you know, something more, more, more. And then when they came, we were practically ready. We only added another team here yeah. and uh, and a bit more of a studio and so mm -hmm. on. So this is what I'm proud of, mm -hmm. uh, that, that we really were growing and I hope we'll still grow uh, mm -hmm. as, as much as those riders. It's amazing. And last thing, David, I have to ask you, everyone is already talking about the tour because Bingogar's here, Pogacar's here. First blood yesterday to Pogacar in the head-to-head -head battle. Do you think he'll win this year? Do you think Tadej will win the Tour this year? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we have to be optimistic. Uh, I'm Slovenian, so yeah, 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 of course. Uh, but I, I hope it will be a tough battle, uh, close, mm. not not like a few minutes difference. Mm. So I, I think he wants to win it again. Mm. If not, uh, he wouldn't uh, return. Uh. Mm. He would pick up a Giro or something. But so Primoz wins the Giro, Tadej the Tour, and then, then Domen Novak the <laughs> Vuelta. <laughs> Maybe they split at the Vuelta who will win it. No. Can you imagine? And it, I'm sorry, but it really is possible. <laughs> and maybe one or two classics at the, at the same time. No. Uh, a few years ago, we were talking about winning a Tour de France stage. Even before, being in a breakaway would be something. Mm -hmm. And it's not that, that far away. Mm -hmm. Now, now you, I can't even imagine. Uh, still. <laughs> If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Well, Daniel Bryan, what do you think of when you think of Milan Sanremo? I mean, that's an overall feeling which tells me that it's springtime in Italy and, and it sort of opens the gate to the next month and a half of incredible racing. There's a special atmosphere to all of those. But also I have personal 
very fond memories, you know, when from when I worked with Cancellara and when he won it, and but definitely also the year Simon Gerrans won it, beating uh, Cancellara amongst others. And yeah, there's just the, from the start in Milano uh, and then to to being uh, on the Ligurian uh, coast, it's just it's just magical. You almost feel that transition from winter to spring on your own body, from you know from the cold and often damp and cloudy part of Milano to to the beautiful sunshine on, in in San Remo. So I've, I have many fond memories of it, and I was actually considering taking the train up uh, on Saturday, not to Milano, but to, to San Remo, just to, just to get a, a, a whiff of that atmosphere once again. Thinking about the times I've covered the race, just the sense, I mean, particularly in the early 2000s, just the chaos of the finish line, which um, it, I don't think it's quite as chaotic as it used to be, but there were there were various editions that finished just in complete pandemonium. I mean, there was one in 1993, I think, where I, um, I wasn't there. That was long before I started covering cycling. But when Fondres won and Mario Cipollini threw his bike through the rear windscreen of Carmine Castellano, the race director. But it was quite easy, even in sort of 2000. I think 2002 was the first one that I did, the one that Cipollini won. It was very easy to see how that had happened because i mean the italians love what they call a casino which is not a, a place where you gamble there, there is a famous one of those in milan san remo casino is just a mess chaos and there was no more chaotic finish than milan san remo people being separated from their bikes people being almost crushed it almost being quite dangerous at times and then you know the the, the fastest sprint that i personally would do in the season would be the sprint to try and catch riders as they rode through the finish line and down towards what's the old train station in San Saremo, which is a good couple of kilometers past the finish in Via Roma and always losing riders because there are also some there are also uh, quite a few hotels on that stretch of what well, the Via Aurelia the the coast road beyond the finish line and some riders have sort of disappear into hotels because teams tend to uh, I don't know whether they anyone actually stays in those hotels but they still it's, sho- it's for showering yeah they yeah. they have showers in these hotels beyond the finish line so you know you'd be looking for Robbie McEwen and you'd be looking for I don't know Alessandro Petacchi for half an hour after the finish and then someone would tell you that they're actually you know they disappeared into their hotel and um, it was actually quite a frustrating this is very you well, quite a, fr- this is very quite a frustrating you, race to cover <laughs> Um, from that point of view because it was over so quickly I mean I always say that the image I always have in my head of the race coming towards you in Milan San Remo is, is of this kind of huge wave like a tidal wave cresting over the Poggio and then crashing down into San Remo and then it's all over very quickly and as a journalist you're usually sort of scrambling floundering around looking for scraps and it's quite difficult but as far as the race is concerned yeah it's the most electrifying last half an hour um, of a race of the season and you know still people we get this debate every year what's your favorite monument what's the most boring monument people always say Sam Remo is the most boring it's my favorite monument just looking ahead to Saturday and just thinking about how people can upset the odds because the odds suggest that the race should finish well I was about to say it should finish in a sprint actually that's less and less the case and in fact I don't consider it sprinters classic at all anymore however for any single individual maybe with the exception of Wout van Aert to win they would somehow have to upset the odds and that even applies for Tade Pogacar it even applies to him I would say and that's to me, one of the most interesting po- talking points about 
Saturday's race and Milan San Remo. I asked Pogacar at the start of Paris, did he have a plan already in mind of how he could win it? And he said he, he's got a few scenarios. Um, obviously, didn't reveal what they are. He and lots of other riders who live in Monaco, who live on that coast, will have been to San Remo and they will have enacted those particular scenarios in training. I mean, Matej Mohoric, when he won last year, he said afterwards that he'd spent a whole day, one particular day, where he thought he'd done the Poggio climb and descent about 12 times. And he literally rehearsed exactly the move he made on the descent to win Milan San Remo. But how Pogaccio is going to win, particularly thinking about last year and his team, UAE, setting a blistering place on the Cipressa, and they sort of had everyone reeling um, after that ascent of the Cipressa, which seemed to have set things up perfectly. Pogaccia, he then attacked incredibly early on the Poggio, almost at the start of the Poggio. He attacked them multiple times and still wasn't able to break the elastic. And what he did, I mean, I said everyone was reeling. Everyone was sort of staggering around the ring. And then it was Mohoric that, that landed the knockout punch. I mean, what's, what's your guys' best guess as to what, this plan is that Pogacar has in mind, particularly thinking of how he failed last year or how it didn't work out last year. They want to try the same thing again. They want, I mean, maybe maybe Lionel can have, have a look at it, but just let me finish. Lionel can have a look at it when he does this, the Friends of the Podcast special with the wind direction on the Cipresa and potentially also on the Poggio. But the, he will need, they will need, or any other one uh, rider with the same uh, strategy of making the race hard could be even Wout van Aert for that matter. They just need to make it as hard as possible from the Cipresa, if not earlier. Uh, so, and then they'll have to see what what the outcome is. And anyone wanting to win the, the race, if you look back on previous editions, even going back to when Nibali did his uh, attack, which was a bit of a scramble, and then he ended up having an advantage anyways, they'll need to be in the, in the first 10 coming into the, or first 15 coming into the Poggio. So that strategy doesn't change, in my opinion. How else would he win the race if he doesn't try and make it out earlier? I mean, I've looked at the wind direction for when Simon and I are re- uh, riding it, which is cross-tail. I've no interest in what the wind direction is for the pro race at the moment. Um, and, I mean, it could, could change around, but uh, cross-tail wind certainly on Thursday and Friday. So we'll see. I mean, I should should stress I'm not taking two days to ride from Savona to San Remo it's only 100 kilometers but uh... on that actually I don't remember any edition of Milan San Remo where I didn't get a phone call because I would I would usually be one of the first people in San Remo on the on the team I would get a phone call immediately or, or being I was told to send a message like what's it tell me exactly the wind direction from when you come out on the Aurelia after the Turquino and and on the coastal road because it is one of you know in a race that's so condensed and so easy before it gets difficult all those things are being taken into consideration both for the teams doing trying to get in the breakaway and staying away as far as possible and for people actually wanting to set up a win Lionel can Pog win uh, how could he win? My my theory is that, you know, I always talk about this in San Remo, that the only way you win is by exploiting a moment of hesitation. That is incredibly difficult to do when you're the race leader and every, oh, sorry, the race favorite or one of the two or three race favorites. And every move is going to be marked. Every move is going to be, it's going to be noticed. I think he somehow needs to convince the rest of the peloton that he's not on a good day that he's not really in the race until he's one decisive move on the podjo that's going to be difficult that's going to be difficult i think he needs to hide somehow 
needs to hide and exploit the fact that maybe people will be thinking the same about Wout van Aert and Matthew van der Poel who I mean van der Poel actually looked good in, in moments in Tirreno Adriatico did that uh, incredible lead out for Philipson didn't he van Aert of course crashed on stage four crashed into Tom Pidcock or brought Tom Pidcock down or I don't, I don't want to apportion blame here but uh, they both uh, lost a big portion of their shorts uh, van Aert looks a little bit like a rider who's trying to force himself into form which is not ideal going into Milan San Remo I mean we say it every year don't we but the, the race offers this fantastic balance between the kind of the punchers the even GC type riders versus the sprinters I know it's not a sprinters classic but if it all comes back down together you know fast finishing uh, can win the day but then also there's the sort of Filippo Ganna type um, who could take a do a Cancellara and take a flyer I mean we saw Jasper Sturven did that a few years ago so there's so many ways um, to win a race that when it's all said and done you, you look at it and think oh well it was it was obvious that was how it's going to turn out because of how the Cipressa and the Poggio went but that's the joy of it I mean I think Daniel your uh, quote last year or the year before it's as uh, relevant now but Milan San Remo is a race that you need to kind of watch with binoculars or a, or a telescope because the, the, those tiny little microscope. moves mi- a microscope even yeah those, those tiny little moves that you know, we, we 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 unpick in retrospect. You know, Caleb Ewan showing too much on the Poggio when perhaps he should have just sat in the wheels and just waited. Um, and and that's the thing, isn't it? But as you say, Brian, it, the easiest um, race to get into a winning position, but then probably one of the most difficult to turn a good position into a, a winning result. And and that's the bit that we all want to watch. And it you know it, it can be a matter of of just seconds even for the strongest riders in the world. I was I was looking. A little bit closer when Nibali won, which I think was a fantastic addition. You know, he had 11 seconds uh, uh, coming into the descent on the Poggio. He had eight at the bottom of the descent of the Poggio, and he had five seconds in the last kilometer. And it was just a question of a few hundred meters uh, between him, you know, winning an iconic race and just being left with nothing. So it's just these tiny little fractions of seconds, which is the biggest contrast to uh, to it being the longest race. Yeah, in the I mean, I mean, Mohoric and his drop a post, drop a seat post last year was was you know clearly showed the level of thought that had gone into it, as you, as you say, Daniel, with the repeated. Um, you know, learning those roads. Uh, but then in race conditions, it, it's slightly different. I always think it does favour a rider that no one's really watching uh, or no one's really, really thinking they have to react immediately. Yeah, but I, but still, they would they would need to have shown themselves at some point in Paranisa Tirreno to, to be strong enough to actually to actually finish the job. OK, I'll give you a name. Søren Crow Anderson. As not, and Lionel was shaking his head, Lionel's countryman. He... He was climbing incredibly well on the last day of um, Pyrenees. Uh, there were a few Danish journalists, obviously there were quite a number of Danish journalists at Pyrenees, and one of them was interviewing him on the final day. They said he'd not won a race for 900 days, or I think it was the 900th day since he last won a race. And he's been very much out of the spotlight, moved teams in the closed season. He's also, the Danish journalists have told me, very cagey, it's very difficult to find out from Turn Crowners and how he's going and what exactly is going on. But um, seems to be riding well. Has been very prominent in the finale of Milan San Remo the last two years. He was probably the reason Jasper Sturven won in 2021. And last year he was right on Pog's wheel when Pog tried to attack on the project. Brian, why were you shaking your head a minute ago? 
Why is he not the dark horse? I'm not saying there's a curse of uh, the curse of the the Crow Anderson. I, he the will. Curse. I think he will eventually win a, a big bike race again. I I just think there's there's people who will be lining up to to be stronger than him uh, on Saturday. But one thing that that actually supports your your theory, Daniel, is that he he's very. He's emotionally attached to certain races, races where he's had a, a, a good go, where he's felt good. He, he's a rider that relies heavily on, on being confident, and then somehow, uh, sometimes he loses touch with his, his self-confidence. But he has a lot of self-confidence regarding San Remo, so I think that's, that's, that will support him, especially now that he's finally at a, at a good level again as a racer, and, and, and there's a good chance he'll be there. I, I just think there are riders who are, who are more likely to beat him, and he... he he might fly under the radar in certain contexts, but if he's sitting with as one of the first 10 guys in the project, people will know that he's there. It strikes me, just thinking about Mohoric and what he did last year and this idea of, of hesitation and telegraphing moves, uh, Mohoric's tactic, someone doing an incredible break net descent, is probably the only kind of undefendable, indefensible, undefendable um, move you can make at Milan's room. That's the only... You know, something like that, maybe Mohoric doing it again, I think is the only thing that could scupper absolutely everyone's tactics um, or everyone's... The quick question is that can Milan Sanremo be won by a rider who doesn't live in Monaco? Yeah, I mean, Mohoric last year, he went around the peloton in the first six hours joking to friends, asking friends whether they knew they knew whether Sam Raymond had a good hospital because he envisaged taking rather extreme risks on the descent, which is what he did in the end. Yeah, that's a good point, Brian. And I think this is something we maybe discussed before that we were we were going to come up with a definitive list of Milan San Raymond winners who have lived in Monaco. And it's just a lengthy list, a very lengthy list. I do think the, the, the problem is that uh, three days out, it's like a game of pin the tail on the donkey. I mean, you could, you, you could, stick your tail on and get it bang on or you could get it someone you know on the nose or the you know the uh, you know the, the one of the hooves Arno Delete has donkeys he owns donkeys it, doesn't he indeed I think that there's 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 uh, a few names to conjure with I think uh, Binium Gamay looked good in Tirreno Adriatico I mean do you think that? well I thought he looked all right yeah I mean a bit it, undercooked didn't didn't slash couldn't react you know at a key moment but then got back in you know, I, I, you know, I don't know. I think that there's always intrigue and interest around teams that have got one of each card to play. You know, a puncher and a sprinter, and really, you know, there is a few. I mean, Mohoric has got the added advantage. I'm not saying that Pasqualon is going to win, but he's a he's a decent finisher if he can sit sit in there. And I think with your Crow Anderson um, suggestion, Daniel, the fact that he's on the same team as Vanderpool and Jasper Philipson again. Can Philipson get over them, uh, you know, and, and be in position into the Via Roma? Not sure. He, he seems to be a sort of Sam Bennett type sprinter. That And then Jumbo Visma, you know, Van Aert, big question marks about him. Uh, but what about Christophe Laporte? Ridden it, I think, eight times. Best ever finish, 71st. But the way he was riding at uh, Omloop and Kerner, Brussels Kerner, and in, you know, with a, with a you know, more important role in the team, who knows? Mess Peterson, Magnus Court. You know, you mentioned Søren Krau. I think that I think they're better Danish candidates. Magnus Court usually does really well. He he can definitely climb and without losing too much of his explosiveness. And and so can Mess Peterson. He did exit Pyrenees with illness, though. So it's there's a there's a minor question mark next to him as well. 
Well, we could go on all day, couldn't we? We could name... We could name all, uh, all 180, 180 starters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, my, my actual official tip for Milan Sanremo, of course, I made it a couple of months ago, and that was Arnold Dully, although I came away from Pranis slightly less confident. If I'm confident, the only thing I'm confident, relatively confident about, as regards Pranis, is that Jan Tratnik will be the first rider he will lead on to the Podger. Because I think he was last year for Bahrain Victorious. He's now moved. Have you found a bookmaker that will give you a good answer? Uh, I don't know. That sounds like the kind of thing I should, I should contact a sort of a, 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 a Malaysian betting syndicate of dubious repute, and they would probably offer odds on that. So Tratnik leads onto the podio. Well, we'll find out on Saturday, and we'll discuss all of this, won't we, Daniel, in Arrive, which will be out will. on Saturday night. Yes, and I think that just about concludes the speculation and the entertainment indeed does it Lionel? it does uh, i'm just going to get my trumpet out because uh, my podcast series oh yes sorry the I tour de, the Go tour on. de cos that simon and i made uh, riding around the football grounds of scotland produced brilliantly by tom wally it's been shortlisted for the sports podcast awards and you can vote you have to register and log in and stuff to register a vote i'll put the link in the show notes a little bit of a faff to vote but uh, would be very grateful if anyone who enjoyed that series would vote for us so we have a chance of winning well then Lionel thank you Daniel thank you Brian thank you chaps thank you guys the cycling podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore Daniel Freeb and Lionel Burns